0: Would you please open your copy of the Bible and find your way to 2 Corinthians? And when you get to 2 Corinthians, find your way to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. While you are turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me ask you a question. Have you heard the story of the barefoot lawyer? Have you heard about the barefoot lawyer? No, no this is not a lawyer joke. There's lots of lawyer jokes that are out there, but have you heard about the barefoot lawyer? Uh, Incidentally, I was looking at some lawyer jokes this week, though, and and one caught my eye. How many lawyer jokes are there anyway? Only three. The rest are true stories. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, forgive me, lawyers uh, in the room, that is a corny joke, but the barefoot lawyer is not a corny joke. If you Googled on your phone, you don't have to, but uh, maybe later. Check out the barefoot lawyer. This is a man who was born in a remote village in Shandong, China, his, his parents named him Shen Guangcheng. He is six months old, a little baby. He went blind. Hence, hence this barefoot blind lawyer label that is attached to Chen. Six months old, he goes blind. He was, he was born in poverty. His parents didn't have resource to take him to a hospital. He had a crazy fever, and the fever destroyed his optical nerves. Blind. Poor, struggling. He had a very rough upbringing. He, he struggled with, with, with the, you know, the, the impairment of, of not being able to see and then poverty in communist China. His father would read literature to him, specifically books about democracy and freedom at an early age, which instilled in Chen a desire for justice. Illiterate and blind, Chen managed as a young adult to immerse himself in the study of law. And he became an advocate for the welfare and the rights of others. Hence the barefoot, because he's poor, the blind, the barefoot, blind lawyer. He, he was devoted in, 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 in law to fighting for the rights, specifically of disabled people, of, of women, and of the unborn. Chen uh, fought the wicked workers of abortion and forced sterilizations in in China. Though though blind, he stared down the abortion machinery of China's one-child policy, and he fought those who were taking the innocent life of children and exploiting helpless women in this horrible, horrible murder. As a result, the communist powers came for Chen, He was no stranger to harassment, to beatings, to fines, to torture, to imprisonment. His his activism landed him in in jail several times. In fact, from 2006 to 2010, he's he's in jail. And, And then after that, he was placed under virtual house arrest. And after 20 months of this sentence of house arrest, he managed to escape his guards in 2012... And though blind and penniless, he found his way to the American embassy in Beijing. He actually broke his foot in the escape. You can read read about it. He gives a testimony about it. You can can read his book. You can can find videos of him talking about this on, on YouTube. A blind man escaping his captors breaks his foot. He gets to the embassy and he finds asylum at the American assembly. Uh, uh, at the American Embassy, and he eventually gets out of China. He gets out of China with his family as well, because his, his family were targeted by the communist government, and, and by thugs who, who, would, who would do the bidding of the government, and they threatened the safety of his family. And so the U.S. Embassy got, got him and his family out, and he arrived in our country and became a scholar at New York University Law School in 2012, and later transitioned to become a Fellow at the Center of Human Rights at the Catholic University of America. Chen has traveled around the world lecturing on human rights and has been the recipient of numerous awards around the world, including Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential List. When you read his story, when you listen to him retell it, finding his way to that embassy where everything changed, finding his way to that embassy where there was protection, He he went from oppression and, and, and fear to freedom and to safety. The embassy was his refuge, his deliverer. Chen escaped prison. He runs to the embassy for safety. And there he met U.S. ambassadors who rescued him, who got his family out of harm's way as they were targets of horrible, horrible persecution and injustice. For many like Chen, the word embassy has an imagery of shelter, sanctuary, safety, and hope. That said, the title of my sermon this morning is Kingdom Embassy, and in this message I want to explore the biblical imagery of ambassadors and embassy, which our sacred book, the Bible, applies to God's people, you and I, brothers and sisters. It it applies to us, this, this image of safety and sanctuary and shelter and hope, embassy, is applied to us in this age in the specific program of the Church of Jesus Christ. I have three broad points for the sermon this morning. They are one, metaphor, two, meaning, and three, mattering. Metaphor, meaning, and mattering. I, I will fill these three points in with content and subpoints under them, so be ready to take notes. And as, as I'm filling in those points, I'll offer reflection and biblical cross-references to unpack these points. So, so, so get your notes ready, get your outline ready. I'm gonna unpack the metaphor, the meaning, and the mattering. That said, this opening story of the barefoot lawyer, the barefoot and blind poor lawyer, is setting the stage for the opening point about a metaphor. The metaphor of this embassy, the metaphor of ambassadorship. On the image in, in front of you that I have on the PowerPoint here, you have a, a picture here. Of the Embassy of the United States in London. It's a very impressive building if you have an opportunity to go to England and see it. It's in Nine Elms. It happens to be the largest embassy of of America in Western Europe. It's just an impressive picture. Well, speaking of pictures, let's get into the biblical picture or metaphor of ambassadorship and embassy. Before I unpack the metaphor, let's let the Scripture speak for itself. I ask for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and here we will see the imagery of embassy, specifically of ambassadorship, that is invoked by the Apostle Paul. Now, by way of historical context, the historic Sha'ul HaTarsi, who we affectionately know as the Apostle Paul, wrote this text, 2 Corinthians, as a passionate pastoral letter to a Christian church in the city of Corinth. He wrote it around the 50s. The believers there in the church of Corinth were facing similar oppressive powers like Chen, the barefoot lawyer, faced. They were facing oppressive powers that were spiritual and immoral in nature. And these spiritual and immoral oppressive powers were finding their way into the church and they were wrecking havoc in the lives of the believers in that congregation, in that city of Corinth, that said uh, that, that this is Second Corinthians. this is Second Corinthians that we have turned to. So th- th- that means there's a letter before this letter, First Corinthians. And in fact, when you read 1 Corinthians, he references a letter before 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians, he references a letter that isn't our 1 Corinthians, so it seems that there's at least four letters that Paul has written to this congregation, which tells us, that those immoral and spiritual forces that were coming into the church and the problems that they were raising were relentless and deep. And so this is a letter that is written to a people who are, who are facing these forces and in many ways they've succumbed to them. After the time of the Apostle Paul, we have in the first century a church father known as Clemens Romanus, the I, who also wrote an epistle to the Corinthians. And, And it dates just about 20 years after this one in the 50s, around 70 A.D., Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and we see in that letter that they were still struggling decades later. This struggle was a concern for Paul. This struggle in Corinth, it was a concern for the spread of the Gospel, for you see, and I'll put in the map up here, a picture of the city, so you, you can see the strategic location of the city of Corinth and Rome. Historically, the cities of Rome, the urban centers of Rome, were critical for the spread of the gospel. And that remains true today. Urban centers and cities, socio-culturally, they, 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 the, they shape the world. When Los Angeles sneezes, the world gets a cold. When London sneezes, the world gets a cold. The major cities of the earth have a way of shaping the culture of of the world. And hence, as the gospel was spreading, it, it, it went for the urban centers. And in capturing those urban centers, it spread all the way out into the highways and the byways. And so Corinth is strategic. That church Paul loves and Christ loves and they're going through stuff and so he writes this to speak to them and without further ado, let's just let him speak. Verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled to, uh, uh, us to Himself through, through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God." There's the metaphor, ambassadors. Now, later in this sermon, I'm going to pick these verses apart, and I'm going to mine the riches of these verses that we just read, 14 through 20. But right now, with the point of the metaphor before us, ambassadorship and the related image of of an embassy where ambassadors are stationed, I want to to talk about this metaphor and give you some cross-references for purposes of understanding it better. An ambassador is a government official, from a particular place or nation that is stationed in another place, a foreign land. The place where they are stationed is known as the embassage. The embassage is where we get our term embassy. In fact, if you are reading in a King James Bible in the 1900 update, you would see in Luke 14, I'll put it in front of you, verse 32, Luke 14:32. the word embassage is used in the two parables that Jesus gives about counting the cost of being his disciple. And you see that you see that up, up here. Not, notice this language of ambassage. See here in verse 32, the king's government that should have sent an ambassage or a group of ambassadors before deciding to get into this foreign conflict that Jesus uses in this parable. The embassy will have intelligence on what is going on in that land because ambassadors live in that foreign land and so then the ambassadors living in that foreign land are representing a homeland and they understand the terrain. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia has an entry for an ambassador and it, 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 it tells us it comes from this Hebrew concept of malach, It it, it comes from this Greek word, presbuo, which is a word that means to act as an ambassador. An ambassador is, again, and here we see in this standard dictionary, an official representative of a king or a government. In the New Testament, it is used in a figurative sense. So that's the figure, that's the metaphor, and we're exploring this figurative sense, which moves us from the metaphor to the meaning on our outline. What, What is the meaning of this? An ambassador is a government official who works in a foreign land stationed at an embassy as a representative of a foreign land for the government of his or her homeland. With this in mind, as it relates to believers being pictured as ambassadors, we discern from his word that God wants us to see our world through this particular lens, your ambassadors. And that means that we look at the world differently. It it, it means that we have this position. And this position, let me highlight two things about this position. First, being ambassadors reminds us that God's kingdom is foreign. That is, there is a sense in which God's kingdom is not here in this world. There's a sense in which it it is not here. In fact, not here in the world is exactly what Jesus said with regard to his kingdom. If you look up here at John chapter 18... Look at John 18, 36. Jesus said, what? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus said, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jewish people. But my kingdom is not of this realm. He said this, the Jewish Messiah said this, as his Jewish community was rejecting his kingship and he stood before the rulers of Rome, and he reminded them, oh yeah, I am king of a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's from another realm. That said, the Hebrew Bible tells the story of God's kingdom that is to come from another realm into this realm. And the Jewish prophets foretold a day when, when God's kingdom from this other realm, from the heavens, would come into the earth. And Jesus, in His teaching ministry, regularly would use phrases like, the kingdom of God is at hand, which is to say, the king is in the house. And Jesus comes with that kingdom from another realm, incarnated, the Son of God incarnated. You see, we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. This Jesus of history is more than a man of history. He's God, the Son of eternity. And he, he, he steps into human history, bringing this realm of God's kingdom with him as the king of heaven into the earth and says, my kingdom is at hand. And when he came to them and when he offers that kingdom and when that kingdom is rejected, we see him saying, like we have here in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. And as his kingdom was being rejected, we see Jesus in his teaching ministry giving various parables in the face of rejection to to cloak things from the the opposition that was coming against him. And in these parables that he gives, we we see him giving parables of the kingdom of God and, and, and playing on the expectation of that realm coming into the world and teaching his disciples that that realm would be postponed. I'll put Luke nineteen, verse eleven in front of you here, and and here we read while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and what was the expectation of it being near Jerusalem? Luke nineteen, eleven. They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It was going to enter into the realm. It was going to come. That is logical expectation when you're reading the Hebrew Bible because the prophets are always talking about this kingdom is going to come. In fact, the storyline of the Bible is, is all about this. You see, the, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who creates the world and, and, and creates humanity to know his love and to image him, and humanity rebels against him and and, and, and steps outside of his kingdom and, 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 and falls into the kingdom of darkness. And, and, and this God who, in his love and his mercy, responds to this rebellion of the kingdom, kingdom of darkness by bringing in his kingdom of light and offering promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to the prophets that, 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 that's guiding a people to himself through whom the kingdom will come. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Jesus' disciples, before he ascended to heaven, we read in Acts chapter 1, I'll put it in front of you, how he gathered them together and how he was there in Jerusalem. And recall that they, they supposed, Luke 19, 11, that in Jerusalem the kingdom was going to appear. And now in Acts chapter 1, when he gathers them, his disciples, Jesus, before the ascension in Jerusalem, the question that they want to know is this. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is that realm that we've read about in the Bible, and that realm that you talked about in your training of us, is that realm going to come to Israel now? Jesus went on to say, It is not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father has fixed by His authority. That day is coming That epoch, that time is coming. God is going to fulfill the promises that He gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David the king, that there would be one of His seed who would sit on His throne and rule perpetually in a kingdom that would restore the earth from the corruption of the kingdom of darkness. So you see, this metaphor of 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 embassy of ambassadorship you you see what it's it's doing first of all here it's reminding us god's kingdom is foreign that's what an ambassador is we are from that kingdom in that other realm but we are stationed in this foreign land brothers and sisters and we should act accordingly we should look at the world accordingly This world, the second thing this teaches us, is that this world is not our home. First, it teaches us His kingdom is in another realm. Second, it reminds us this world is not our home. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, I'll put it in front of you. This world, this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. I said a moment ago that God's kingdom is in another realm, that it is yet to come. I reminded you that Jesus taught us to pray for His kingdom come. We have a book in the Bible, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that looks into the future and it sees, in the book of Revelation, this realm colliding with this realm that we're in. It sees that happening in the future. The, the, the temple the, of, of, of the kingdom of God comes down and collides with ours and comes into the earth, it's going to happen. It's in God's Word. And the things that are in God's Word, when He says something's going to happen, it, it happens. It's going to happen. His kingdom's going to come. And until then, we're waiting that day. And until then, and until then, we are to view this world as not our home. And we are to view this world as a place in which we have been placed to be an embassy for the kingdom that is yet to come. Because of what Christ has done, the eternal Son who became a man, who died in our place, because He died in our place, because He gave His life for us, because He rescued us from the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against the Creator, because of this, because of this salvation, this gift that is given to us, because of this... We not only have been adopted as God's own sons and daughters, but we have been given citizenship in this kingdom. Look at what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. You see, the language of conformity of of the body is eschatological. We, we, We had our sister up here sharing with us last week, this week, of the devastating news of cancer in the body. Our bodies have disease. Our bodies die. Ten out of ten people die. It is a a fearful and anxious reality of this world because this world has rebelled against the giver of life. And in rebelling against the giver of life, death and disease has come and it's taken its toll and it whittles our bodies and it will claim us all. But behold, the one who has come who took that penalty upon himself and after taking the penalty of death itself rose up from the dead and has conquered it in his body and will conquer it in your body Brother and sister who are in him, this eschatological body will be conformed. It's the second Advent, the King, he's coming. Jesus is coming back. He will raise the dead, he will renew all things, he will restore all things. And until that day comes, the Bible informs us that we are to keep in mind this world is not my home. And if you don't keep that in mind, you know what happens? You will conform to this world. You will seek the comforts of this world and you will live for them. And the comforts of this world and the things of this world will bamboozle you because they will promise you goods that they cannot deliver. They will give you a dream that will never, ever come. And you will find years of your life gone. You will find the glasses through which you see the world will radically shape you to see things in a way that will draw you far from the Creator. The modern poet, Naz, has a song that he wrote called Heaven. And in the song Heaven, he muses, and I quote, If heaven was a mile away, would I pack up my bags and leave this world behind? If heaven was a mile away, would I fill up the tank with gas and be out the front door in a flash? If heaven was was down the street on Manchester and, and, and Lincoln, would we say, hey, let's wrap the service and get down there. Heaven is right there. Let's go. Or would we, you know, we got a, we got some things on our bucket list to do first. We got some things that we're living for besides that. It's a profound question that he raises and one that we honestly should reflect upon and realize that the fact of the matter is, as much as we say, Oh, your kingdom come, there's still things that we really want to do before he comes, don't we? There's things we want to get, things we want to enjoy. I'll never forget, I was a, a single man, and I was uh, studying, you know, the doctrine of the rapture, and Jesus coming back, and I was just so excited about it, and I was, I was sharing with, a, with, a, with an older believer, I said, oh, I just want him to come back, oh, be, I was so excited, I said, oh, I want him to come back, and this older believer said, but don't you want to get married and have a family first? Now my kids are in the room, so I've got to be careful with this one, but No. I want the last days to be postponed because I got stuff I need to do. No, we are not living, even for good things like family and children and whatever, we're not living for those things. This world is not our home. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this letter, among the many letters that he wrote as I shared with you, he is concerned that the Corinthians were conforming to the world. He's concerned that the Corinthians were getting too comfortable with this world, too cozy with this world. And when you get cozy with the world, you find yourself in bed with the world, and you conform to the world, and you lose hope. You stop living for the King who is to come, and you stop living as His embassy in this fallen world filled with people who can find refuge in His church. The Apostle Paul was concerned with this, Hopefully you still have Corinthians open, because I want to unpack the text, so keep it open. This is a huge problem for the church. They didn't see Corinth as a strategic city for the gospel. They, They saw Corinth as a place to consume goods, but not to use strategically for the gospel. A place to consume, a place to conform. Oh, that still is happening today. We view the city as a place to go to consume, we view the city as a place to go. I'll go there for college. I'll go there for a job. I'll go there for... for, for and when I'm done enjoying those things, then I'm out. I'm out. Because you know what? The city's too hard. It's too expensive. They tax you. It's too bad. It's too this. It's too this. I'm out. Paul is crying to the Corinthians, see the city. See the mission. Take the hill. You are ambassadors take the hill. You're citizens of this kingdom. What are you living for? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he has this same language. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Live accordingly. Paul wasn't alone in this. Peter... The the great apostle Peter also spoke this way. In 1 Peter, let me put it in front of you. He says, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, you're chosen, you're aliens, and I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Serve the city, but don't get comfortable in it sacrifice for the city but don't but don't sit consuming it because it will twist you it will wage war against your soul but that is why i have placed you there paul peter they speak this way it's mission it's sacrifice it's service you are citizens from another place you are ambassadors. The church is this embassy. They, they speak this way, and there's power in seeing the world this way. And they speak this way because Jesus spoke this way. Read the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation where Jesus speaks to the church and reminds the church, don't conform to the world. Don't view the world the way the world views the world. So with these cross-references in mind, Now let's return to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and let me move through the verses and unpack some of the words and some of the meaning in the text. We have the metaphor, and let's get into the meaning of the text. I I gave you some historical context of the letter of 2 Corinthians, of the city of Corinth, of its significance for the spread of the gospel, and before I mind these rich verses that are before us in the sacred text, let me give you a little bit of literary context. We're in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, so what comes in the chapters before it? You jump into 2 Corinthians, and it it feels like jumping into a Twitter fight. Uh, You ever have, you ever, I I don't do much tweeting or Twittering or whatever, but occasionally people will send me a link, and did you see what so-and-so posted or whatever, and you hit the link, and you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? I haven't followed this thing. You want to know what I think about it? Well, let me scroll up. Oh, whoa, someone said that. Well, then let me scroll up some more. Oh, let me hit this. Oh, and you, you find that you're in the, the middle of this, like, just sea of stuff that's going on. Twitter spats, scrolling, trying to figure it out. I don't have time for that, so I, I really don't engage it too much. I'm really rarely on Twitter and dealing with trolls and what have you. But when it comes to 2 Corinthians... I, I can't just log out. This is the Word of God, so I've got to figure out who these trolls are. I've got to scroll around and see what's going on in this text. I, I can't buy Felicia 2 Corinthians. It's in the Bible. I want to understand this. So, Paul has trolls, the congregation has trolls. They have, they have sin and this guy's saying this about this guy and this guy's doing this and this thing from the city is coming into the church and all these things are going on. And you open up, you start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is just to give you context, so we jump back into chapter 5 in just a second. Follow me. 1 through 11. You get the salutation of the text. Now, Paul has some heavy things to share with them and so we're not surprised that he opens the text by pointing them to God and praising God. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And then the Apostle Paul moves after the salutation and the greeting to offer some encouragement to the saints because he knows they're beaten down and he's got some hard words for them. So from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 13, he moves to explain to the church his heart for sharing with them the, the, the truth about their condition. And, and he offers him some personal background about some of his travel plans and his desires to get down to Corinth, to be with them in person, to have some conversations about some, some things. And after that opening, in chapter 2, verse 14, he moves into an extended conversation about Jesus Christ and the ministry of the new covenant and the Christian life and, and holiness. And that extends from 2, 14, uh, and about the all the way about the fourth verse of, say, chapter 7. And that said, we're in the middle of this big chunk where Paul's talking about Christ and New Covenant. We're in chapter 5 that's in this chunk from uh, 2.14 to 7.4. We're in here, and in here he gives this metaphor of ambassadorship. And in it we see his heart for the congregation to forsake the world, focus on the gospel, sacrifice for the city. He wants the church to be an embassy of the kingdom, to herald the kingdom come, to prepare the people for the return of the King, to live for the King in the present, the the life in the present. Paul doesn't see this life, uh, this Christian life, as unattainable, but rather he sees it as available in the power of the gospel through the love of Christ. Look at the text. Verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. This brings us to the sub-point that I have for you around the meaning. Paul describes a controlling power for these ambassadors. In pop culture, there's a lot of talk about loving God. Oh, love God. You've got to love God. You've got to love God, and you've got to love Him. You've got to love Him. And in churches, there's a lot of talk of the love of God, and often preachers, when they talk about the love of God, they will bring the law, and they'll say, Do you love Him enough? Do you love God as you should love God? Do you love Him? And, and, and then preachers will press into you, and then you start feeling like, I don't, I don't love Him. I should love Him more. He loves me. I should love Him more. And, and then you feel like, I need to love Him more. But if you don't hear the gospel preached when the law is pressed in, you will never be freed by His controlling love to know His love. Look, we don't love Him the way we should. Hear the gospel. Hear of his love. Hear what he has done for you. And in repentance and faith, draw near to him and know his controlling love. Paul lifts up the gospel in the face of the law. Paul describes God's love, and it's a love that controls us. It's a love that is faithful and steady. It is a love that never wavers. Keep in mind. This love he's talking about is not abstract or ambiguous. It's not romantic or individualistic. Rather, this love is grounded in the gospel. It's grounded in the cross of Calvary. It's grounded in that Good Friday when he died that brutal death on the cross of Calvary. Look at verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all. The love is tied to the historic event of his death. Therefore, he says, all died. The word that is used here, for, for. okay, He died for. That word for in the original language is huper. Huper literally means on behalf of. He died on behalf of. That is substitutionary. A substitute is one who stands in the place of another. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was standing in the place of you and I. He was innocent. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. Why is he up there? Who pair? He is doing it on behalf of us. In Galatians chapter two, verse twenty, the apostle Paul spoke this way, and I quote: "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The love, the controlling love, is tied to the cross." And it flows from the cross to the believer. As Paul thinks of the cross, he finds comfort and he finds control. And from the cross, the love of Christ flows and empowers the faith of the believer. Look at the way Paul speaks of the love of God in Christ in the cross in his letter to the Romans in the 8th chapter. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, peril, or sword? No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing can separate you from his love there is nothing you can do to make him love you less there is nothing you can do either to make him love you more because his love is in spite of you his love is unconditionally given to you his love is manifest and accomplished in the cross when he died so his love is not abstract it's bound in history in an event in Good Friday, when he who pair on behalf of you died on the cross of Calvary. Verse 15, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. You see, his love is bound in history, it's bound in that historic event of, of, of his death and further of his resurrection. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul explained how Jesus, Galatians 3.13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Speaking of explaining what is happening on the cross with 2 Corinthians in front of us, look at chapter 5, look at verse 21. See how Paul explains the cross and the Father making the Son, He who what knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Jewish prophets foretold that a Hebrew Messiah would come, and He would come for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, and He would suffer for them. The Jewish Messiah would suffer as a servant of the people. In our public reading of Scripture today, in Isaiah 53, we read that great prophecy of that suffering servant who would be crushed for the people. That prophecy was fulfilled in the cross of Calvary, where the innocent Lamb of God was crushed and sacrificed. God's love bound in that historic moment. It is bound in history. It is further bound in him the eternal God in the incarnate Lord Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews thirteen eight tells us. Bound in Him, so that means His love doesn't change, because He is immutable, He doesn't change. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news, because it means that not only does His love never go out, but the gift of salvation never goes out. You cannot lose your salvation, because you did nothing to obtain your salvation. It was the gift of God. Further, you cannot lose your salvation because your salvation is not something that you hold. You see, I can lose my keys because I hold my keys. And I often lose them. You ask my kids. And they lose the remote control all the time. You can lose things that you can hold in your hand. Salvation isn't something I hold in my hand. It is something that God has done to me. And it's something that He has done to me because of what He did on the tree. He has saved you. He has put His love on you. And in His love, He has given you a calling to be His ambassador, crying out to this world of what He has done. You are His ambassador. You are citizens of His kingdom to come. And you are not mere government employees in this program that He is rolling out in human history. Oh no, you're family members. You've been adopted as His sons and daughters. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God, and such we are. We're not just called it, but we are. And for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. See the love? Paul is gripped by this love in 2 Corinthians 5. He's gripped by the love of the cross. He's gripped by the love of Christ. He's he's sharing Christ with them so that as they hear Christ proclaimed, they will be drawn in repentance and faith from their conformity to the ways of the world. Paul wants the Corinthian readers to know Him, to know that Christ died for all of you, He's not talking about everyone on the planet. He's talking to the Corinthians. He he died for you, Corinthians, you believers in the church of Corinth. The all here in the verse is inclusive of the readers. That is, all of us. Here in verse 15, the all is modified by the us of verse 14. Paul desires the readers to see Christ's love for them, us, in dying for them. His death on the cross... That was a personal work that He did for you. He did it for you, Corinthians. See His love for you, Corinthians. Jesus taught His disciples about this love and taught His disciples that this love wasn't just for them to have, but it was for them to share. In John 15, Jesus told His disciples, This is My commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than the one who lays down His life for His friends. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life because he chose to love them, and he is controlling them with this love so that that love is flowing over into others. We love, 1 John tells us, chapter 4, verse 19, because he first loved us. His love changes us. His love controls us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And Paul goes on to describe how Christ's love and his work makes us new. That's the next subpoint. Paul is describing the controlling power of Christ. He's describing how we are created new in Christ. And being created new means that we now look at things differently. Look at the text, look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Let me pause right there. Paul is describing a new way of living, a new way of looking at the world. Specifically, a new way of looking at other people in the world new testament scholar dr ben witherington writes of this verse and i quote the result of knowing that one died for all is not only that all believers must live for him but also that believers must not regard anyone in the same way as they did when they were not in christ not even christ is to be acknowledged as kata sarka that is according to the flesh look look at the verse where we left off therefore now On, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ, katasarka, according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Before Christ saved Paul, Paul formally viewed Jesus the Christ according to the flesh, which that phrase, katasarka, according to the flesh, operates as a colloquialism to say from a human point of view or from a carnal, worldly point of view. You see, before Christ's love grabbed Paul, he viewed Christ from a carnal, worldly point of view. But when Christ saves a man or a woman, they come to see Christ in a new way. They see his worth. They see his value. And apart from his grace, you would not see him this way. He wouldn't be the world's greatest treasure to you. He wouldn't be treasure. In fact, he would just be trash. You would not worship him. You would view him as worthless. You would miss the pearl of great price. You would see him, katasarka, and just, ah, ah, you wouldn't want him. No value to you. There is a modern parable about a father uh, who, before he died, wanted to give his son a family heirloom. That was of great value to him. In fact, it, it was a watch. And he said to his son, this is a watch that your grandfather gave to me. And it was a watch that he got from his grandfather. It's, it's more than 200 years old. And before I give it to you, I want you to take it. I want you to go to the, the watch shop on First Street and tell the watch shop that I, I want to sell this watch and see how much he offers you. And so the son did it, and he went back and came to the father, and he said, the watchmaker offered me $5 for it. He said, he said it's old, it's just worth 5 $5. So the father said to the son, he said, well, go go to the coffee shop with the watch and and, and see what they will offer you for it down at the coffee shop down the street. And so he went down to the coffee shop and and he came back to his dad and he said, "They, they also offered five bucks for it, dad. They said, it's old. And the father told the son, he said, son, I want you to go to the museum and I want you to show the curator at the museum the watch and ask him how much it's worth. And he went and he came back and he said to his father, They offered us a million dollars for that watch. And the father said to the son, I wanted to let you know that the right place values you in the right way. Son, don't find yourself in the wrong place and get angry that you're not valued there. Those that know your value are those who appreciate you. Don't stay in a place where nobody sees your value, son. Now, the modern parable is told to make the point about knowing your your personal worth. And that said, I'd like to use the parable, though powerful, and use it in a different sense to make Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 5, namely that we would be like the watchmaker, we would be like the people at the coffee shop who would offer Jesus five bucks instead of the millions that he deserves if we were left in our sin. We would not see how priceless he is. We would see him katasarka, according to the flesh. We would never put a price tag on him that is is of his worth and of his glory and of his love. Paul is lifting up Christ. He's lifting up the one who is priceless. He is worth more than millions. And he is saying, see his worth. See how he changed you to see him for what he is. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. We've been created new. We look at him and the world and other people differently. He's made us new, and that newness of life comes in and through Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shared with the believers in the the letter that we have in our canon before this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he shared with them, Verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he shared with them and he pointed them to the Hebrew Bible, to Moses, to the book of Genesis. And and, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he, he, he spoke about our father Adam and Adam was the head of the old creation. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he says that Christ is the last Adam who brings life to the children who are dead in Adam and Christ as the last Adam is the head of a new creation. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of resurrection, and he describes Jesus as the first fruits to come from the new creation. I said there's going to be the kingdom in that other realm that's going to merge with this one in the last days. And then when it comes, it's going to renew and restore and raise the dead. The old creation will be made into a new creation. And the first piece of the new creation came... On Easter morning, when the dead corpse of the crucified Messiah was risen from the dead. That's the first piece of the new creation. A piece of the new creation walking in Jerusalem in the old creation. A piece of the new creation which has ascended into heaven and will return and bring that realm with it and renew and restore all things. And now in those who He is saving and giving His love, we are experiencing the peace of that new creation in Him as He is making us into new creations who are viewing the world in a different way and seeing Him and His value and worth because of what He has done. Now all these things, verse 18, are from God, who reconciled Himself through Christ. You were born into this world, fallen in your father Adam, in sin, alienated from God, but God took you from alienation into reconciliation and rescued you, and now He calls you to be His ambassadors. We see the meaning of the metaphor. It's about his controlling power through his love, being created new and being given the position of his ambassadors. Now all things, verse 18, are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He brought you from alienation to reconciliation and now with this reconciliation, he is calling you to do what he has done for you, namely to reconcile others to himself. As we say make disciples love his church sacrifice for the city share his word his word is committed to us look at verse 19 that's what he says namely that god was in christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against him and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation paul is preaching the gospel he's heralding the god who does not hold our trespasses against us that's grace. That's grace, you made a mistake, you sinned, you rebelled, you, des- you deserve the consequences of it. But instead, but instead, he doesn't count your trespasses against you because who pair in behalf of you, he hung on the tree, the cross of Calvary, and because of that. In the courtroom of God, you have been declared justified. In the courtroom of God, you've been given justification. It's as though you haven't sinned. He doesn't hold the trespass against you. He has given you a government declaration of justification. Speaking of government, He has given you this government position of being an ambassador. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See Paul's passion for his position? He's really excited about this ambassador gig, isn't he? Yeah, you get excited about a new job, you start a new job, you're really excited again in this thing, he's really excited for it, he's, he's filled with passion in these verses. Look at, look at what we just read in verse 20, he's begging, he is begging, he's groveling. De- oh mai, he says in the original language, deomai oh is, is a word for begging, for pleading. It's a word for prayer, for petition. Paul doesn't just talk about the gospel. He invites people to the gospel. He doesn't just invite them to the gospel. He pleads and begs, come to him. Do you, do you plea? Do you beg the lost in your life? To come to Jesus with this kind of passion? Do you, do you see the world like you're an ambassador? Like the barefoot lawyer, you've been given something great, you've been rescued from, from oppression, you've been rescued from the darkness, and you've been given this, and now you can use this new citizenship that you, that you have... Not to enjoy the benefits of citizenship, but to plea with those who are outside of the embassy to come in and to find refuge. Paul is reminding them of this wonderful position that has been given to them. He's reminding them that they represent the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that the king has chosen to make his appeal through us. And because he is making his appeal through us, it is right that we beg. We ain't too proud to beg either. We beg. Come, come, be reconciled to him. I beg you not to listen to this message today and not receive this reconciliation. Paul, he he, he's telling them look, this is what we've been given. We're ambassadors. In his letter to the Ephesians, he says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, if you study the Apostle Paul, you, you go, I mean, if anyone needs prayers for boldness, it's not the Apostle Paul. And yet he says, no, pray for me that I would be bold, that I would share, that I would beg, that I would plea. That I would be an ambassador who is worthy of my king. That I would announce. That's what ambassadors are called to do. They are called to make announcements. The church of Jesus Christ today is busy doing many things. Busy doing projects. Busy doing this and that. Busy preaching sermons. Sermons that never herald the triune God or plead with sinners to come and be reconciled to him. The church has succumbed into entertainment and pragmatism, doing anything and everything besides announcing the gospel and pleading and begging sinners to come. We've been called to make an announcement. We have been called as his ambassadors to engage in argumentation. Paul isn't just announcing and begging and pleading. He's also an apologist who engages the world and tears down the ideas of the world in his presentation of the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians in front of you, chapter 5, verse 11. What does it say? What does he describe? He says, we persuade men. We persuade them. We we move on their consciences, he says in the verse. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, a few few chapters later, what does he say? He, He reminds them, look, our weapons of warfare aren't of the flesh. We have been given a task as ambassadors to do what? To destroy speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, we are taking captive every thought and bringing it in obedience to Christ. You see, ambassadors take the things of this world and they look at them differently and they tear down the things that aren't from God, lest the people of God conform to things that aren't from God. And dare I say, many in the Church of Jesus Christ today in North America are being conformed and discipled by voices that have nothing to do with their Lord. And further, they're sitting They're sitting on their calling in the gospel, whereas ambassadors have been called to action. We've been called to action. We've been called to, to get messy with it. We've been, we've been called to love people who, who are mean. We've been called to turn our cheeks to, 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 to people who strike us. We've been called to give of our finances and our, and our time. We've been called as a church to be an embassy, and embassies... Come under attack. Ambassadors are no strangers to action. I think of the movie 13 Hours, did you see that? The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. The movie was based off the 2012 attack on the U.S. compound in uh, Benghazi that resulted in the death of the U.S. ambassador uh, to Libya, J. Christopher Stevens. You think of the conflict, you think they're fighting and their lives are on the line, they're trying to hold the embassy down, and and the ambassadors, they see action, they come under attack. I think of the 1998 U.S. Embassy bombings in which more than 200 people were killed, and the nearly simultaneous truck bomb and the explosions to the two East African cities, one at the United States Embassy in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and the other in Nairobi, Kenya at the U.S. Embassy. You see, the embassy is the target of the enemy. The foreign hostile land sees that as a target. We've we got the image of the London embassy here in the background, and that might be a little misleading because it looks really nice, and in fact, when you go there, it is really nice, but see, that's a nice place to be in, but we are in a world that is hostile. As ambassadors, we're going we're gonna to be called to action. As, as ambassadors, Paul describes himself in Ephesians, as I showed you, in chains. Think of the world that we are living in. Don't be surprised when the world treats you the way that it does. I think of Kelvin Cochran. Remember Kelvin Cochran? Who's the former administrator of the United States Fire Administration, former fire chief of Atlanta Fire Department. He got fired from the Atlanta Fire Department over something he wrote for a Bible study in his church because he had biblical views of marriage and sexuality they fired him this week in australia did you hear about the new ceo andrew thornburn of the major australian sports franchise the SN football club he lasted exactly one day on the job after getting canned for his christian faith he was a, he was forced to resign over connections to his church an anglican church called city on the hill the church believes in traditional marriage and the church is pro-life. It doesn't like killing babies. Imagine that. And I, I guess that was just too much for Australia's biggest sports football club. And so they canned him. And, and what does the world think about this? I can't believe you can the new CEO after one day. No, the world is mad. The Australians are mad at that church because they love that football team and they want that football team to win. And so that church is messing up the win. Essendon is a symbol of their national identity, and now this local church, because of its views, you see, has disgraced our football club. Well, guess what? As ambassadors, you need to be ready for the reality that people are going to come for your job. They're going to come for your home. They're going to come for your children. They're going to demonize you. They're going to attack you. They're going to come for Delray Church. Churches won't, churches won't be immune from this. If you are an embassy, you will come under attack. Sadly, many churches won't be left standing and filled because many in the culture have already fled the places where it is hard. But we've been called to go to the places where it is hard, and we have been told that the kingdom of hell, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church. So then, the mattering. What's the mattering of all this? We've looked at the metaphor, we've looked at the meeting really quickly. He died so that we might die. That's the mattering second corinthians five fourteen. we read of christ dying as well we read of those for whom he died also dying one of my favorite commentators dr warren wearsby writes of this verse that the tense of the verb verse 14 the meaning all died the truth is explained in detail in romans 6 wearsby writes and we've read that in our public reading of scripture today because of this the believer's identity in christ when christ died we died in him And with him, therefore, the old life should have no hold on us today. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul said. So he died, so we might die. What what does this matter? He died, so we might die. Second, he died, so we might live. We read Romans 6. Paul talks about being raised to new life in Christ. We read in 1 John 4. God sent the only begotten Son into the world that we might what? Live through him. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate His death. We're going, to, we're going to think of His resurrection. We're going to proclaim Him until He comes in communion. And in so doing, reflect on how He is calling you to die in His death, how He's calling you to live in His resurrection, and how He is calling you to go. He died so we may go on mission as His ambassadors into the place where it is hard, in the place where you're going to get fired at, in the place where you're going to get canceled, In the place where where you're going to face distress, but that's where He has placed you and called you to represent Him. Some say, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do this, just share the gospel and all that stuff. I'm intimidated by this. Well, be like Paul. He said, Pray for me that the Lord would open my mouth. Be like Paul. Be, Be like the Corinthians. Just go and just share. You will never know until you try. And you will never try until you pray. And you will never pray unless the love of Christ is controlling you. Hear the call of Christ to obey Him, to come to Him, to come in repentance and faith. And hear the gospel that left to your own, you would never come in, in, in repentance and faith to obey the word that has been preached to you, had He not fully obeyed the word given to Him and died, who pair in our place." Let's come to the communion table. Let's celebrate that work of Huppert dying in our place. Let's join our mouths and and, and our hearts in song as we sing to him and celebrate what he has done. And let's picture anew in doing it. This is a meal for his embassy here. Delray Church, you are an embassy of the kingdom of God placed in the corner of West Los Angeles to bear tidings of the King who is coming. Are you carrying that message? Will you carry that message? Will you be transformed by that message? Let's seek Him to this end. Father, we thank You for Your love this morning. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as we come to the table that He has prepared for us, Lord, I pray that You would renew us. That You would create a clean heart in us that you would draw us to you, that you would take your word as, as as it's been preached today, and Lord, that you would press your word into our hearts, and that its power would manifest in us, changing us. Lord, we beg that you would change us, and we know that you are a good Father, and so we know that you will hear our cry and answer. Lord, we beg on behalf of our loved ones who are far from you, Lord, we beg that you would be merciful to save them. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would use us to this end, that you would speak through us as your ambassadors, and that you would use us. Lord, we would be so excited and honored to be used by you to see people coming to you, We are not worthy. We don't share as we should. We don't live as we should. And so, Father, we thank you for your grace, and we throw ourselves at your mercy and pray, Lord, that your love would control us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.